Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. In this edition of our podcast, I'll be joined by Missouri head coach Conzo Martin, Evan Mobley from USC, who was our March Madness National Player of the Week, and Dennis Gates, the head coach of Cleveland State. The Vikings atop the Horizon League with Martin and Gates. A lot of topics to unpack, including the influence that John Thompson Jr. and John Cheney had on their lives. Also, where we are right now in terms of diversity hiring, who has been empowered to, to pick up the baton, if you will, and to be those voices that will be almost incredibly difficult to replace because those were two iconic figures, not just in the game, civil rights, but in obviously sports and in the American fabric. So there's no question that replacing those two giants will be incredibly difficult in the months and years to come. Before we get to the interviews, a couple of house cleaning items. First off, Baylor is now on an extended pause. Uh, They're going to end up missing five games. And so it's going to be a little bit of a difficult stretch for the Bears. I can't see how they're going to reschedule these games, all of them, uh, because by the time they come back, you're looking at two weeks left in the regular season before the conference tournament of the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City, and then the NCAA tournament. So a team like Baylor is going to have to make some decisions and the Big 12. Do you just reschedule what's next on the schedule, or do you try to create more of a, a balanced schedule for anyone potentially catching them for the Big 12 title? You have to wait and see where we are in the standings. So a difficult decision for the Big 12 with Baylor at that point. I think for some of the other schools that have gone back on pause, that maybe aren't in that same position. When they come back, school like UMass, how much time is left? Do they just play their schedule and hope that obviously they can make a run in the Atlantic 10? But there are other schools like in Iona. Whenever they do come back, they've definitely got the ability to make a run to win their conference tournament and get a bid because there's just not much of a difference uh, between, you know, let's say Siena and Iona as an example at the top of that league. But look, these are the things that aren't happening on the court. Uh, there's still been highly competitive basketball uh, every week, every day, especially in the Big Ten, the top of the Big 12, games that matter that ultimately will determine seeding, selection. The Big East, obviously, St. John's was our national team of the week. They've won six in a row. So there's enough high-quality teams, enough teams like a Drake and a Loyola Chicago uh, at one spectrum to – Fill the field with highly competitive teams. We're going to have an NCAA tournament of teams that, you know, legitimately can compete for the national championship. I firmly believe that. And the teams that the Blue Bloods that cannot, they're just not good enough this year. Duke is in a perilous situation whether or not they're going to make the tournament, you know, right now after losing to Miami, North Carolina. North Carolina should be fine. Ultimately, they could be a bubble team, but I think they'll be in 
Uh, Kentucky's going to have to win the SEC tournament to get in. Uh, Kansas is in a losing skid right now, but they're going to be fine. Overall body work, they'll get in. Other schools that would fit into that criteria, like in Indiana, I think ultimately will get in. The win over Iowa with the season sweep of the Hawkeyes was critical for them. So they'll they'll be fine. They'll get in. And uh, obviously, Blue Bloods like Villanova and UCLA are completely fine because they're top of their standings. Although UCLA did lose to USC, uh, so they've slid back at least a game in the uh, in the loss column. Uh, USC now has the tiebreaker against UCLA. And as for Michigan State, another Blue Blood, the Spartans finally got a win over Nebraska, and they certainly have the capabilities to go on a run and earn a berth, but they're probably going to have to go six and four in their final 10 games. Uh, You know, there's plenty of candidates within the Big Ten that could compete for a national championship. Michigan, which is expected now to come back for their game this weekend against Wisconsin. Chad Aycock and I will talk about that at the back part of the podcast. They're not playing their Illinois game this week, not because of COVID specifically. It's because they needed more time to practice before that game, which other teams have done. Santa Clara did that, so it's not abnormal. Uh, Illinois, Ohio State, of course, and Iowa, I would say, are all schools that could compete for that. And before we get to our guests, there are three names that I want to recognize here before we take a hard segue and get back to, to basketball. Three people who had a tremendous impact on lives in this sport, people I knew personally, passed away over the last week. Pedro Gomez, a former colleague of mine at ESPN, covered Major League Baseball for multiple decades. I will tell you that not just a journalist, I don't know if I met a finer individual during my tenure there. Just an unbelievable, kind, warm person that no one ever had a negative word to say about him at all. He passed away at the age of 58, tragically on Sunday, unexpectedly. It's just, it's hard to even fathom that he's gone. And I want to send my condolences to his family. And I know to plenty of colleagues that are really, really hurting this week. Lou Hill, head coach at Texas Rio Grande, died unexpectedly over the weekend as well. Former assistant to Lon Kruger at UNLV at Oklahoma, played at Wichita State, finally gets his head coaching opportunity. Absolutely tragic that he passed away. And his impact, you can tell, has been felt by the basketball community. And then Tom Konchalski, who was the scout. I mean, he was the scouts of scouts. Primarily in the Northeast, there isn't a player that came through five-star basketball camp or played in the I-95 quarter probably in the last 25 to 30 years, maybe 40 years, excuse me, that doesn't know him, hadn't heard of him, and wasn't impacted by him. The entire basketball community mourns his passing. He was so close to so many, and he went into hospice over the weekend and passed away. Uh, I want to direct you to a column written by Adam Zagoria. It's on Twitter. Uh, did an unbelievable job of capturing Konchalski's life and his impact on the game. So it's it's a heavy heart. I mean, three massive losses. Uh, 
And I don't want to be down, but transition here that losing John Thompson Jr. and John Chaney, two iconic figures, it does dovetail into these conversations I had with Conzo Martin and Dennis Gates. You will hear that, the influence that they had on their lives, not just on African-American coaches, but on basketball. So we're going to first talk about their teams, two teams that are heading in the right direction. And so I want to get to that first. And here's Conzo Martin, head coach of Missouri. And now joining me here, March Madness, March Madness 365, Conzo Martin from Missouri. And uh, Mizzou, yet again, came up with a huge win in the SEC. You know, I talked to Mitchell Smith, uh, as you know, after your game, he had the great block on Herb Jones to clinch that win. And the last couple of possessions defensively, you guys were locked in. And this team has risen to the challenge in this league over the last couple of weeks. Um, why do you think that is that this group has embraced these moments? Well, I think I think that the biggest thing, Andy, they, they have a passion for each other. Uh, they're grateful for the opportunity, man, especially in these times. And they're trying to do the right things, stay out of harm's way, so to speak, make sure they're accountable for all their actions, which are easier said than done. You do with young guys on the college campus still trying to be entertaining, have fun. So I respect that. But, you know, they, they want to see each other be successful, man. I, I think that's the biggest key. But they've also been together. We, we've taken some lumps. We've grown. That journey's been a bumpy one, but it's one well-received, and we appreciate everything that comes with it. You know, in hindsight, it really is crazy that you guys were picked toward the bottom of the SEC. Mitchell talked about that to me, about how that's been used. And if you really take a step back, everyone was completely wrong. You had all this experience coming back, talented experience, and now it's proven out, certainly, in the way you guys are playing. How much has this group used that to its advantage? I don't think they were consumed with that, man. I just think oftentimes when when you, when you do those type of rankings in, in the preseason, I, I think it's comfort to, to, to pick the usual suspects. I mean, I just think, okay, we pick this team. Because I, I I think all the people that do all the picking, they haven't walked in anybody's gym in the summertime, hadn't been in anybody's gym in the fall, but that's easy. Uh, and I think that's also careless when you're doing your job. You don't hold yourself accountable to, to really do your research and homework. But for us, we don't get consumed with that. I don't spend a lot, a lot of time talking about that. I just say, man, you, you have to play as hard as you can play. And I think that's easier said than done. So we always talk about playing hard. What does that mean? It's giving me everything you got until the buzzer sounds. And it's like it's almost like, and I tell our guys respectfully, when a game is over, it's hard for me to eat because I'm so exhausted because of what I put into it. And we're not quite there yet. We're probably at a 75% clip. Hopefully we can get to 100%. I think when you look at it like that, because again, they're grateful for an opportunity. And this is not guaranteed to anybody. I mean, you see teams that are not planning games. We've missed four games due to COVID. And, and just to be grateful to, to actually play a game. And so I tell our guys, man, those guys you sit in the locker room with 20, 30 years down the road, man, you remember these times. And, and especially this time, this year, with COVID and all that, man, these are lifetime experience. And you don't get those back, man. I, I miss those times being in the locker room with my teammates. Yeah, there's no question. Everyone I've talked to is incredibly grateful and knows that every day it could easily go away by just, you know, one potential positive test so or a contact. So everyone knows that. And and your guys definitely, in, in my conversations with them, they understand it, they appreciate it, and it has brought them great joy. And a lot of times in this year, it's been hard to have any of that. How can this team, though, get better over the final month of the season to really potentially reach its potential? Oh man, we 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 have uh, you know one you know finishing games you know you got to finish games, 
and, and not not that our guys get on their heels and finishing the games, but having the confidence to do what we started. Let's finish the game doing it. We we can't get in those cases where you're up ten or twelve, and all of a sudden let me take this shot, which that's not a shot I normally take because we're up. Uh, let me shoot it quick now. My rebounds aren't ready to rebound. Somebody else get a fast break on us, and it's a ball game. I, I just think for us. Uh, being consistent, going through Jeremiah Tillman. And what I mean by going through Jeremiah Tillman, not that you pound the ball inside to him every time because he's a presence down there, but he makes us go. When, he, when he's active, we're getting the ball to him. When we're driving the ball, even though you're not going to him inside, when you drive that ball, he's the presence on that offensive glass. But we have to utilize him in some way, shape, or form every time down when he's on the floor because he's a physical presence. And there are not many big guys in America that runs the floor the way he runs. And then, then the thing with him, it's, you know, the first three years, it was just mind-boggling because he didn't look really look to block shots, even though he has 100 blocks on his, on his career. But it seemed like this, this senior year, he's trying to block shots and making plays, and that's taking his defense to another level. How has your team adapted to sort of creating that own energy? Because it's very difficult to obviously feed off a crowd if there even is one. I think that the biggest thing is, uh, and I go back to it, you have an opportunity to play a game that you supposedly enjoy. You have an opportunity to play this game. If there's nobody in the gym, then it's the old school street ball. That's what it is. Now, with that being said, not many of these guys have played a lot of street ball with that. You know, it's just like they got the trainers and all that, and everything is inside of a building. But I just try to have those guys imagine that mind you're playing old school street ball with the older guys. Man, if you lose a game, you're not getting back on the court for another five or six games. You might as well go home. But it's that type of mentality. Don't, don't get consumed. And I've always said, even with great fans, don't get consumed with the periphery. Focus on what's going on on the floor. That's what the great ones do, man. I mean, oftentimes you can't hear what's going on in the stands if you're locked in on the wood. So, Conzo, um, just want to shift gears here for a moment. We lost two iconic figures in college basketball. Uh, I know it's a hard segue here, but in, in the last six months, most recently, John Chaney, and then prior to that, John Thompson Jr. First, I'm just curious from your vantage point, coming up, uh, you know, from from East St. Louis and playing at Purdue and then your coaching tree, just what they meant to you in any kind of, whether you had a connection or not, just as someone who was out there as a voice that obviously clearly they were mentors. They were people to look up to in the way they handled themselves, the way they led and the way they basically broke doors down for those that came behind them. Because of the things those guys fought for, I'm allowed to sit in this seat. I, I sit in right now. They were, they were powerful men, you know, great fathers. They were strong. And you're talking in those times, 60s, 70s, early 80s, man, those were, those were tough times to speak out on certain things those guys spoke out about, but they were strong and they understood that I got to be on the front lines of this and in order for the next 20 or 30 years, it can be better for somebody else. And in a lot of ways, we're doing that today with, with a lot of coaches. We, we have to be on the front lines of whatever it is. So this game our community and our coach can be better 20, 30 years down the road. But, you know, you grew up watching those guys, man. When those guys came to your communities, man, everything shut down. It was almost like, you know, a rock star coming to town. Man, that was a big deal because, again, you looked up to those figures. I mean, you know, growing up as a kid, you, you dream of being a police officer or a fireman. And then you look at those guys, you dream of being those guys one day. And now you sit in that seat. And, and those, those shoes will never be filled. Uh, and it's just similar to Martin Luther King. You'll never feel those level of shoes, but what you have to try to do, you have to learn those lessons and try to be the next best thing, but you will never be those guys. I mean, they're just, those are legendary figures, in my opinion. Those are angels. And what you have to do more than anything, um, you, have to, you just have to pray for peace for them and their families, man, because, again, that, that's a powerful loss because, and, and, and I say this respectfully, the, the losses of those two men didn't just impact their, their families. 
It impacts a lot of people. A lot of guys looked up to him, man. And that just, that's a void that has to be filled. And again, it'll never be filled at that level. You know, last week I did a uh, NCAA social series on the newly formed Black AD Alliance, which is uh, athletic directors across the country trying to continue to get new blood, if you will, into the system to help people across the country to get in the administrative side. I know there's the McLennan Initiative, but I'm curious from your vantage point, how do we get more diversity in hiring uh, at the head coaching level? Obviously, it's pretty good at the assistant level, but how do we break down that barrier for more black coaches to become head coaches going forward? Well, uh, it's, it's real simple, uh, Andy. When, when, you, when your posture and your approach change, that's when it changes. I mean, man, I, I, why is it such a battlefield on hiring someone of color? I don't, that, that's mind blowing to me. As, as good as you are, Andy, you, you were hired because you were qualified. You, you were qualified. That, that should be the criteria. I'm qualified to do the job. Why is it such a big deal because of a person's color, whether or not they can do the job? And you look at administrations all around the country. You, I mean, you, you look at just Power Five schools, for example. How many successful former black players, men and women, on administrative roles at their respective universities, or even around the country. You look at that, it's like, why not? They were great players and they played. So why can't they be in a position of administration and making decisions and making rules, but they, they were good enough to perform? I, I just, I, I don't know what's hard about that. What's hard about that? I think if you ask each individual person to answer that question and put them in front of a camera, say how to answer that, because you can always hide behind an answer. But how, how do you not hire somebody, either they're qualified or they're not? That's it's, it's real simple. I don't know if you have to write the rule and rules. You got to have all these rules to hire somebody that's qualified to do a job. That makes no sense to me. Well, and that's the problem uh, because uh, there shouldn't be token interviews. Uh, you should feel like you're on equal footing across the country, uh, regardless of where the job is. And, and it was really, it was eye-opening when Carla Williams from Virginia told me, she was told, don't apply. Other people are in line. You have no shot. And what did that tell her? That told her, you know what? I'm going to apply. I'm going to make sure I got a shot because she's basically told before. And and this is a black woman who's probably got two strikes against her because it's so hard to crack as an African-American and as a female at the highest level of administration. So, you know, I think she's a great role model in that sense. And, you know, I'm hoping that there will be more doors that get knocked down as we go forward. And hopefully this last year has done that. Well, I think, uh, Every lesson you learn, though some are painful, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not wasted if you really grasp what's been said. And I, and I, I think for me, uh, just going through hard times, and I think for a lot of uh, people of color, mainly black people, oftentimes we've been trained with trouble. Uh, we, we, we were raised with less. So you know how to deal with situations. I, I expect that out the gates. I expect it to be tough for me. I expect not to have the opportunity. So that means I got to go even harder. So me going even harder is normal. That's not abnormal for me. And it's just unfortunate that we have to deal with that, but it's a part of it. It's a part of it. It goes with the territory and hopefully one day that'll change. Well, I think uh, the future is in good hands, in your hands. You're certainly, uh, you know, someone that a lot of people look up to. Uh, you hold yourself with unbelievable high character and have been a tremendous role model for others. And, and I know that has permeated throughout the course of the program and talking to your players. They love the way you carry yourself and you can see it. It extends to them. They don't get too high. They don't get too low. They keep it pretty even, which is a great way to be, certainly at this time. Conzo, I appreciate it. Stay safe. And I think more good things to come from Missouri this season. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate your time, man. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. All right, it's time for Katz Ranks here. 
on March Madness, March Madness 365, and taking the cue from the GOAT, Tom Brady, experience matters. Older players matter to win championships. So let's look in college basketball at this moment in time, games ending February 7th, experience matters. Seniors, ranking of the top 10 seniors, their impact on their respective teams at this moment in time. We'll start with number 10, Austin Peay's Terry Taylor. Averaging around 20 points a game, he's having an impactful senior season for Austin P. We'll see if they can get out of the OVC, past Belmont, into the NCAA tournament. But regardless, he's having a senior season to remember. At number nine, Dimitri Trice from Wisconsin. It's hard to pick one player from the Badgers, but he's probably been the most consistent Badger and has played big when Wisconsin has needed him most. At number eight, McKinley Wright IV out of Colorado. Entered the season as a potential Pac-12 Player of the Year candidate. Still potentially could get there. And if the Buffaloes get to the NCAA tournament, it will be because of Wright. At number seven, Sam Hauser from Virginia. Now he's further down than probably should, but the Cavaliers have not been as dominant as I think a lot of us thought they would. Uh, they've still got a lot of work to do. They're still now the ACC favorite, but Hauser uh, has played well lately. And that's why He's in the lower third, and I think certainly he could move up on this list. At number six, Isaiah Livers from Michigan. He has started to play big before the pause uh, to where he was looking like he could be their leading scorer on a consistent basis, not just someone like Hunter Dickinson, the freshman big, but Livers now is getting the ball much more. He's much more active. Hopefully when they come off of pause, that will continue for Livers and the Wolverines. At number five, Sandro Mamu Kalashvili from Seton Hall. Now, Sandro has been the answer for the Pirates. Mamu, is, as he's nicknamed, uh, has stepped up when they've needed him most. They're just coming off an important sweep up in the Northeast, knocking off UConn and Providence, and the Pirates looking like an NCAA tournament team at this point in February. At number four, one of the big time guards on Baylor, Macy Oteague. He's had his moments. I mean, certainly it's been Jared, Butler and David Mitchell and Adam Flagler, but Teague has had his moments where he has been the guy for the Baylor Bears. At number three, John Petty Jr. from Alabama. Right now, the tide of the top team in the SEC. We'll see if they can hold that position, but Petty Jr. has answered the bell every time for Alabama. At number two, Corey Kispert from Gonzaga. He's having a National Player of the Year season. He can hit threes, he can score around the post. He's got great leadership skills. And the Zags are undefeated in large part because of Kispert. And at number one, Luca Garza. Luca Garza still may win National Player of the Year. He's scoring at a high clip every night, essentially, 18 or more, sometime in the high 20s. Early in the season, it was in the 30s. But he has having to deal with the attention and the coverage every time out. He is the opposing scout. Somehow you've got to throttle him and they're trying to make the perimeter players beat you. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But Garza is drawing all the attention and he's dealing with the punishing defensive focus every game. So he still is at the top of this list. So those are your top 10 seniors, most experienced players at this point in college basketball. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, Evan Mobley from USC, our national Player of the week after he had 23 against Stanford, nine and nine and four blocks against UCLA. And the Trojans now are in first place. 
ahead of UCLA with that win over the Bruins. Evan, let's look back on that week. First off, the game against Stanford and UCLA. If you can, just um, what was the mindset of this Trojan team knowing that this really could be a season-changing week for this team? Uh, yeah, uh, we knew that it, it could be a season-changing week. Um, our coaches emphasized that a lot in our practices. Uh, so we really try to lock in on each game. On the Stanford game, we really try to uh, lock in, um, get there early on the uh, road trip, um, and just lock in the entire game and then uh, come back for, for the UCLA game and uh, get another dub. And we knew that uh, we had a good chance of winning those games. You know, what I thought was great about this week is as much as you have been uh, the anchor and I think, and the reason, you know, I chose you was you had so much influence without having, you know, 20 points against UCLA. Ethan Anderson had a phenomenal game, but that was a great example of this team's versatility that you could be the high scorer against Stanford. Ethan gets it done against UCLA. You contribute in other ways. What does that tell you about the potential of this group? Our team is very versatile. It can be anyone at, on any night. There's a lot of players that got their uh, season's high, career high this season so far. Noah had like 18 one time. Uh, Ethan had 19 the other night. Had 20-some uh, on Stanford. Uh, my brother gets in there. Like anyone could be a, a, the high scorer. We have a lot of scores, um, opportunities to just open up the floor when everyone it can score the ball. You know, Evan, you're, you're in a pretty unique situation because as many sacrifices as everyone's making, a lot of it means you don't see your family. You're pretty, pretty unique in this. You get to play with your brother and for your dad, Eric Mobley on the staff. As you mentioned, Isaiah also on this team. Uh, he's a veteran player. You're the freshman here. What has that been like knowing that a lot of peers around the country, A, probably aren't even seeing their siblings, let alone their parents? It's just a great uh, opportunity I get to have playing with my brother and my dad. Um, it's just amazing. I get to see them daily. Um, other people have to sacrifice that. And it's just amazing uh, when me and my brother are on the floor, we have that chemistry, um, passing the ball to each other and uh, knowing where each other are at, at on the floor. And then my dad just touches, uh, pitches in uh, here and there on what we could do better and stuff like that. So it's just amazing. But I still miss my mom and stuff. So uh, I haven't seen her in like a long time. I don't know when, but um, I still miss her. So, yeah. Yeah, so to that point, I should not, never forget the moms here. You know, how hard has that been on her? I know it's been really hard because usually she's at every single one of our games. If she's not at my brother's game, uh, she was at my high school game. So she was at one of our games always. And like, this is like her first time not being able to like to really come to any games. But I know she's watching every single night at home and like cheering us on. So what, what did you think? And I know we still have a long way to go here. But what did you think this season could be like for you amid an unprecedented time? I feel like we could have had a great season. Um, we're having a great season so far, and we just are trying to maintain this season, keep winning, keep locking in every game, take every game step by step, uh, not look too far into the future, and uh, just, yeah, stay locked in. The decision to come, it seemed like a no-brainer. You know, there are other players of your caliber who chose not to, only a few, really a handful. But when you look back so far, uh, how glad are you that you made this decision? Um, I'm very glad. I stay close to home, Southern California, the weather, the school, academics uh, is great. Just all together, um, I'm, I'm very happy with my decision. And, and a couple last questions here. You know, as we talked about the potential, where do you think is the most room for growth with this team here in the final couple of weeks of the regular season? 
Probably locking in on defense and turning that into a transition. We got to get better at transitions uh, a lot more. And then uh, getting out to three-point shooters because some games when they're close is usually from them shooting threes and stuff like that. So mostly on the defensive side and then having a better pace to our offense as well. So, And lastly, uh, Evan, you've shown a variety of skill set, if you will, so far. Obviously, you know, the usual thing is always oh, got to get stronger, he's got to get bigger, but you're not in the NBA right now. You're in college basketball. So even in this short amount of time, in the next couple of weeks, in what way can you get better to help this team, you know, potentially make a deep run? Just probably being more dominant and uh, attacking every chance I get, taking what the defense gives me. Um, anytime I touch the ball to make a play for my teammates or for our whole team, whether that's me scoring or me passing it out to make a pl- better play, but probably just uh, mentally just trying to dominate the entire game. Well, Evan, you're doing a great job so far. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Stay safe. Got to keep you on the floor. And this USC team that I think is going to be certainly one to watch here in the next month. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, Dennis Gates, the head coach of Cleveland State. And Dennis, a couple different topics that I want to discuss with you. First off, your team. You guys are top the Horizon League as we start this week, beginning on February 8th. 12 and 2 in the league, 12 and 5 overall. A couple years into the job. I know this is an unprecedented season, though. Where are you in terms of where you thought this program would be? Well, as it relates to, um, you know, where we are, I think each day, uh, we're, our major goal was to try to get better each day uh, when we first took over the program. And we've continued to do that. We hadn't measured ourselves on wins and losses in that first season. But when we got into this season, we knew that we had sort of an advantage underlining because we had to manage a situation that didn't allow us to have a summer workout. Uh, We had to manage a situation where we had to do things a little bit different because of the timing of us taking over the program. So ultimately, we used those things, fine-tuned some things, and ultimately just trying to get our guys better each game. And they bought in uh, when it came down to team building. And that was the most important thing that we've we've endured up to this moment. So a couple things. First of all, it's an accomplishment. You've played 17 games so far. You know, there's some teams that have played under 10. And a lot of it's luck, uh, obviously, with what's happened around the country uh, in various programs and whether or not someone's been on pause once or twice or three times. How have you, your staff, and these players navigated this unprecedented season? Well, I think first we looked at COVID-19 as a member institution because we would have to compete against whatever parameters it threw into our uh, system. And we wanted to obviously navigate it. Our president, Harlan Sands, our senior VP, Forrest Faison, and our athletic director, Scott Garrett, they have been unreal when it comes to the management part of getting us to this point and our return to play committee. But we just wanted to make sure our guys knew how fortunate we would be to get on the court, but also that we will be throwing curveballs along the way. And there was nothing different other than these guys not complaining one bit and getting to this point. Whatever hurdle was in our way, they overcame it and and obviously got together when it came down to, um, you know, practice planning, our staff development, player development, and they just took one day at a time and just looked at it as an opportunity to grow and accomplish and get better. So I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we're already into mid-February almost. 
And uh, we start to look at teams that if they get in, you know, could they do something? Could they be a team, you know, that pulls a 12-5 upset, a 13-4, you name it. If you're so fortunate to get into the NCAA tournament, what is it about this Vikings team that tells you, yes, and you've been obviously in a program like Florida State that's gone deep in the tournament, that can win a game or two? Well, I just think the the steady growth that we have had, I still think we hadn't played our best basketball up to date and our guys would agree the same when we assess our team and evaluate our team each week we look at just ourselves and and if we're giving our very best at the same time and we have yet to to put that on the court in one one instance and one game so we're looking forward to what our future has but the very difficult part is just staying in the moment like you just spoke about and making sure our guys don't get too far ahead of themselves or too far behind and just staying in the moment. Our whole mentality has been geared toward, you know, just continuing player development, continuing team development and staff development and living in the moment and try to just just go at one week at a time, one game at a time. So moving forward, it's our goal, no doubt about it, but we're just in the moment. So Dennis, um, it is Black History Month, and I do want to highlight a couple things here. I mean, we've lost Two iconic figures, not just in the sport of basketball, but I think in American sports, you know, just as human beings to lose big John Thompson and John Chaney over the last uh, few months has been devastating. And just two legendary figures that I know uh, that I had just an unbelievable honor to deal with just in my small role. You have coached under, uh, I think, one of the, you know, best coaches of this generation as well, and Leonard Hamilton. Um, so I'm just curious to get your vantage point as a younger African-American coach, just the influences that maybe th- they had on you, those that have just passed, and someone like Leonard and maybe someone else. Well, first, we lost some giants in, in our coaching industry. And, you know, losing John Thompson and John Chaney, um, in a matter of months is, is, is a blow to our game, the game of basketball in general. Uh, but you also look at, you know, losing, you know, the iconic Lou Olsen. So it's not just about black or white. It's, it's about we lost some good men. We also lost two head coaches this season in Anthony Stewart and Lou Hill. Those are great dudes who have definitely had a niche in this career and profession and do it, did it for the right reasons. And we all currently stand on the shoulders of of the Giants who came before us. Uh, Me personally, you know, being mentored by Leonard Hamilton and George Ravelin, those two are are my biggest champions. And there hadn't been a time where I hadn't been able to reach out to those gentlemen in the middle of the night, wee hours, and just sift information through those brains of theirs and them help guide me as I am in my infant stages of becoming a a, a head coach. And I'm, I'm doing it because of my mentors believed in me. They put their arms around me and gave me confidence, didn't micromanage, allowed me to make mistakes early. And ultimately, Cleveland State gave me a great opportunity, uh, Harlan Sands and, and Scott Garrett. But you look at those gentlemen and look at what they've done. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, obviously, you look at the iconic um, John McClendon, who was the first black coach at a predominantly white institution. That happened here at Cleveland State. And he's just been awarded the uh, Teddy Award through the NCAA. So these all, all are all stories and things that add to our game. And I'm excited to teach our young people about it, about the history, 
but there's no doubt about it. My heart is heavy. Our business hearts are heavy because of what our recent losses are and were. And obviously, you know, my heart goes out to Anthony Stewart, his family and program, as, as well as Lou Hill and his family and program. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just unbelievably tragic. I appreciate you mentioning Lou Hill. I mean, that literally just happened uh, within the last uh, 24 hours of us taping. Uh, so, yes, absolutely tragic that that just her beloved assistant at all his stops under Lon Kruger, UNLV, Oklahoma, um, and getting his head coaching chance down at uh, Rio Grande in Texas. To the point you bring up about John McClendon, just receiving the Teddy Roosevelt Award through the NCAA he got his 500th victory during those years that he was at Cleveland State from 66 to 69. Uh, in what way has Cleveland State chosen to honor him? Uh, because I think mainstream or this generation fully doesn't appreciate, as you just mentioned, his impact on the game. It's now just finally coming out. And hopefully, you know, it will be taught more about the influence that he had. Well, I'll tell you what, time has an interesting way of putting uh, people, places, and events in its rightful place, right, historically. And it may have taken a little time, whatever the obstacles may have been, however racially charged that time was for him not to be able to, to be recognized and accomplish those goals. Time has an interesting way of doing those things. And, you know, right now, as long as his legacy continues to live, I just really believe he didn't only impact black coaches. He impacted the game of basketball from a global perspective. And in due time, he he was, you know, obviously he got into the Hall of Fame three three occasions as a coach, as a uh, contributor, and then as a, his team, North Carolina, I mean, his uh, North Carolina Central team. Uh, you know, those guys, you know, I think it was either Tennessee State or, or North Carolina Central. Sorry about the miss, mishap. But those guys, man, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable what the Cleveland State tradition is in this city. Um, and John McClendon is a part of that. We remember the secret game, the secret game that happened against Duke and North Carolina Central. But there's other things that he as a coach contributed to. And, and this, this is one of them. Being the first black coach at a predominantly white institution, he gave the game something different. And he gave them a great teacher, a great mentor, and obviously he gave inspiration to those that followed. When you speak of John Thompson, John Chaney, uh, those guys, George Ravlin and, and Nolan Richardson, those guys leaned on John McClendon in their early careers, and he mentored them. So I'm just fortunate enough to be able to be impacted by Leonard Hamilton and George Ravlin, and obviously being connected to Cleveland State University as, as, as those accomplishments of John McClendon are, are loud and clear today. And, and I should point out that over the, during the pandemic, one of the things that happened was the McClendon uh, initiative that John Calipari at Kentucky was instrumental in, Tommy Amaker at Harvard, a lot of coaches being involved of trying to, you know, continue sort of the pipeline of minority hiring um, across all spectrums, not just, you know, uh, as head basketball coaches. Uh, so that was sort of a positive, if you will, that's come out of the pandemic where people had time to think about things and to, you know, come up with what obviously, hopefully, will be a positive step in, in increasing diversity hiring. To that point, last thing I want to get from you, Dennis, is that circling back in these voices that we lost, we have seen, obviously, since George Floyd's murder, the empowerment of the student athlete to speak out and 
not to be uh, silenced in any way. I mean, no coach in the right mind would say, don't say something if you believe in it in this moment in time. That wasn't the case, you know, certainly in the 60s and the 70s. You could get in trouble for it in the 80s and 90s. People were passive and apathetic. And so now it's come back. Um, and the student athletes are being encouraged to participate in the, whether it's the voting process or just something that you're passionate about that you want to help affect change. In terms of coaches, though, you know, Thompson and Cheney were, were two of the best, Nolan Richardson, obviously, of really grabbing that moment and expressing themselves, challenging the status quo, if you will. This next generation, your generation, how important is it when there are wrongs that those speak out to right them? And as the late, great John Lewis would say, to maybe cause some good trouble. Well, I would say this, education is key. To understand really where we are, you have to understand where we were and the reasons that we got there. Uh, There's no doubt about it, the fabric of our history is convoluted. It's convoluted with things that we're not proud of as a nation. Uh, But historian Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the second black man to receive his PhD from Harvard University in 1915, he helped founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. In 1924, he turned to his fraternity brothers uh, in Omega Sapphire fraternity and created Negro History and Literature Week because he thought that the youth were not taught about the achievements and contributions of blacks in America. Two years later, 1926, he sent out a press release. This is in 1926 about let's celebrate Negro History Week in a week of February because it's the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, February 12th, and Frederick Douglass, uh, February 14th, highlighting these two men because they already celebrated the black community for what they have accomplished. Now, fast forward by way of the civil rights movement, 1960s, John Lewis, you spoke of good trouble, the energy of black students on college campuses. John Lewis was one. Inner city elementary school teachers and high school teachers began to teach youth about the history of blacks for a sense of pride, a sense of belonging. And it became evidence of its importance because President Gerald Ford, 50 years later, 1976, the 50th anniversary of that week that Carter G. Woodson began, it became recognized as Black History Month. And now you look at that education and some who may not have known that much detail about where uh, Black History Month has started, who started it, who initiated it, Student athletes need to continue to learn about this information. And, the, and, and, and there's other information out there that's been lost and suppressed throughout time that I truly believe this past summer when the world was still, we were in a pandemic and, and obviously isolated. It allowed minds to turn, but also hearts to open up, eyes to open up, ears to listen a little bit better. And it put a spotlight on how far we have come, but also where we need to also continue to move toward. And, you know, this generation of student athletes I'm proud of, and I try to teach my guys all this history and everything under the sun, but it's their job to continue. It's our job to continue. Black, white, Asian, no matter who it it is, it's our jobs to respect each other, use emotionally, emotional intelligence, and continue to learn, and, and the education is key. Wow. Uh, so appreciate all those words, Dennis. Um, <laughs> I hope people listening take to heart 
Um, tremendous knowledge here in the history. Uh, and, you know, look, it can only get better. Hopefully it will. Uh, and I have a good sense that you're going to be a part of, um, of certainly that new voice that is needed, uh, that next generation. Congratulate you on, on your early success. I know more is to come. And Cleveland State's going to be a program. And you, Dennis, are going to be someone we're going to be talking about for, I think, uh, you know, certainly months and maybe years to come. Appreciate you, Dennis. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you, Andy. Thanks for having us. Go Vikes. And now it's time for March Chadness here on March Madness 365. And Chad, I have to watch it because if I stick my chest out too far, I'm going to get bitten, so to speak. I was 7-1 and one last week. That's pretty good. That's right. And that was coming off uh, you hitting win number 50. Uh, so you're not slowing down. You hit win number 50, and now you've got win number 57 after, yeah, you're right, 7-1. and one. The only loss, the Ohio State-Iowa game where Ohio State pulled out the road victory by four. Andy, I mean, you're getting hot at the right time. It's February. We're one month away. You feeling confident going into the next few weeks and conference tournaments and everything? I am, and there were a couple close calls. Obviously, I was high on Illinois multiple times, so that was positive. And so I think I'm back in the good graces with the Illini Nation, uh, you know, because sometimes when I pick against them. The Ohio State fans, though, by the way, they've been on me, although some have said maybe it's good when I pick against them. But I have to admit, I didn't see Iowa losing multiple games last week. So there's some issues there with the Hawkeyes that they've got to correct. Yeah, I believe they've lost four out of five, and and they've got a big game this week that we'll pick here in a minute. But uh, let's start with Tuesday night, number 14, West Virginia, at number seven, Texas Tech. Uh, Round one, a couple of weeks ago, this game went to the West Virginia as Deuce McBride hit that game winner late. Uh, Mac McClung's uh, answer kind of went off the rim there, so West Virginia held on. Uh, How do you like the rematch to turn out? I'm going to go with the Red Raiders. Uh, I think that it's going to be incredibly difficult to sweep teams this season in the Big 12 uh, outside of Baylor. And it's unfortunate they're on an extended pause now. But uh, I like Texas Tech to knock off West Virginia in two teams that I could definitely see winning multiple games in the tournament. Yeah, no doubt. So now let's get to that Iowa matchup I just hinted at. It's number 25 Rutgers at number 15 Iowa on Wednesday night. Rutgers is kind of welcome, welcome back to the AP poll with a tough road game here. Uh, but it's been a really wild season for the Scarlet Knights. Uh, they started off the year with six straight wins. Then they lost six of seven. And now they've won four in a row. And they're back in you know the AP top 25. Uh, Iowa mentioned that slump, lost four out of five. Who do you think wins here? Uh, I'm going to go with Iowa. I just can't see them losing another home game. They did catch Rutgers at a good time the previous uh, game when they played in New Jersey. And so, you know, this is a case where, look, Indiana swept Iowa. I wouldn't be shocked if Iowa swept Rutgers, even though Rutgers is playing better than Iowa. Uh, This is a sense of urgency game right now for the Hawkeyes. Uh, They've got to win this. Yeah, this is is do or die time for Iowa. They got to right the ship, get hot before conference tournaments and then before it's, you know, (laughs) single elimination for the NCAA tournament. Uh, let's look at Saturday. There's several matchups I'm going to run by you here. And uh, let's go back to West Virginia. This time it's going to be number 12, Oklahoma, at number 14, West Virginia. Um, Andy, the Sooners, you know, they'll have a little bit of an additional rest after their midweek game against Baylor was postponed. Who do you think wins? This is tough because, you know, it's it's all getting back to the lack of rhythm uh, that a lot of these schools are really searching for and not having it. Uh, can really disrupt the way, you know, th- their whole preparation. And so suddenly when you lose that Baylor game, 
you know, now you've gone a full week in between games. And then you're, when you pick it up back up, you got to go to West Virginia uh, and West Virginia will have already played. So uh, I'm going to say that West Virginia is going to hold serve here. Oklahoma is going to get caught by not having anything in between Iowa state and the uh, Mountaineers. So I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to go with West Virginia. Yeah, you, you touched on it with Oklahoma, but sometimes, you know, just having the extra practice or the rest and not playing a game, yeah, can mess those teams up. You know, they've been practicing for four or five months, you know, already now. And, you know, maybe practice seems a little disinteresting and they, they like that two-game-a-week rhythm and this kind of throws a little wrench in it. Let's go to the ACC with Louisville at number 18, Virginia Tech. Uh, the Cards, you know, they've had their fair share of postponements, but they should be back in action in Blacksburg here. Both teams kind of battling for that ACC title still. They're not out of it yet. You know, they only have three conference losses each. Who do you like to win? I like Virginia Tech. We have no idea what Louisville is going to be like when they come out of it. We saw how you saw how poor Clemson was for that first week and a half uh, when they came out of their pause. Very few teams have sort of hit the ground running. And maybe that's why Michigan's doing what they're doing, which is they didn't want to play Illinois on short notice and they're getting more rest before they play or more practice, I should say, before they play Wisconsin. So I, I, I'm going to like Virginia Tech here because Louisville is going to be coming right out to Blacksburg to a team that um, you know certainly feels like they got a chance to still challenge near the top of the ACC. No doubt about that. Not to mention Virginia Tech. They've been pretty good at home. They beat Virginia. I think they beat Duke. Uh, they've been they've been really good in Blacksburg this year. Yeah, outside of the Penn State game. That was an anomaly. That was near the beginning of the season, too. Yeah. So. Now, how about number 16, Tennessee at LSU? You know, Tennessee, they've been about a 500 ball club over, you know, over the last six games. But LSU, they've dropped, I think, four out of five as well, kind of like Iowa. Do you think the Tigers will right the ship here at home, though? Uh, I don't. I, I have more faith in Tennessee, even though uh, they've had some trouble closing out games. I still like their experience over LSU. Um, you know, if I'm going to buy stock in a team, it's going to be in Tennessee, not LSU, down the stretch. All right. Big big win for the Vols there if they can get that one in Baton Rouge. Now let's look at the Big East. Got a top 25 matchup here in number five Villanova at number 19 Creighton. Uh, and this should be a pretty fun, just high-scoring matchup in Omaha. These are easily the top two teams in the Big East. If you want to give Xavier, you know, some credit there. But I think it's Villanova and Creighton. I think you'd agree. Who do you like to win? So this is tough. Villanova did not play well against Georgetown. Creighton has already lost at home to Georgetown. They have been beaten multiple times there. You know, I, I just, I like Villanova better than Creighton, regardless of location. You know, Creighton has been way all, I mean, they've been all over the map. And they're just not reliable right now where you can pick them. Whereas Villanova, uh, outside of hitting a hot St. John's team on the road, uh, I just, They've already won at Texas. I mean, this is a team that can handle its business away from home, especially in big games. And I think Villanova will rise to the challenge and knock off the Blue Jays. All right. Yeah, that'd be a big matchup there. Creighton, they can score, especially at home, but they could run into some rebounding troubles there against Villanova. Uh, but we'll see how, see how it turns out. Now let's jump over to a matchup we probably didn't think would be a, a very good one at the beginning of the season, but here we are. You've got one team ranked and another team. They were they were one of the final three unbeaten teams, and that's number 22, Loyola Chicago, at Drake. Uh, I mentioned Drake. They lost uh, Sunday to Valpo, and that was their first loss of the season. They were hanging right there with Baylor and Gonzaga. It's the final unbeaten teams. Um, but this week, the Ramblers took their place in the polls. Uh, Cameron Crutwig, uh, the big man from that Final Four team for the Ramblers, you know, he's having a strong senior season. But the interesting thing about this matchup, and you've seen this in conference play for this league, is they'll play each other twice, once Saturday and once Sunday, both at Drake. How do you think these matchups will shake out? you think either team will sweep? No, I'm going for the split. 
That's not a cop-out. I think it's just realistic here. And I think Loyola and Drake will split these games. Uh, if you're going to make me pick an order, I would be more inclined to go with Loyola in the first matchup, Drake in the second. What I've found in these back-to-backs is it's very difficult for the road team to turn you know, quickly around on day two because they're staying on the road. They are out of their routine. And whereas the home team can sort of regroup a little bit easier uh, on day two. So I'm going to go with Loyola in the first matchup, Drake in the second. Yeah, that's exactly what we saw with Drake when they they won at Valpo and then and then suffered a loss in that second game on the road. Um, so we'll see if that holds true here with Loyola and Drake. Uh, and then Sunday, the final matchup of the week, you just kind of hinted at it with Michigan, but it is number three, Michigan, at number 21, Wisconsin. Uh, Michigan, all the way up to number three this week um, after that Nova loss last week. This feels like the number one spot in the adjusted polls. If you if you just kind of pencil in Gonzaga and Baylor at the top every week. But Andy, do you think they can kind of keep their momentum going in Madison? So remember that week when I picked against Michigan and it blew up on me? <laughs> it didn't work out well. Yeah. But I have to say, as much as I think Michigan is a better team and has more talent than Wisconsin, something we didn't think in the preseason, I just don't like this matchup as their first game back out of the shoot. I know they they didn't want to, like I said, they wanted more practice time before playing Illinois. But the difference with their shutdown is because of the variant in Ann Arbor. You know, the, what we've seen with some of these pauses is some of the players who potentially, you know, like weren't affected, weren't contact traced, you know, weren't positive. They were able to do things. And then everyone came back together when they come out of pause. Michigan was on a lockdown and separated. And that's been different. And that's why I have no idea what's going to happen when this group comes together, what kind of condition they're going to be in. It may take them a week or two to get back to where they were pre-pause. And that's why, because of that, I'm going to go with Wisconsin at home. Big pick there, especially after Michigan. They smoked them in the first go-around, but you made a lot of good points on why that may not be the case uh, this week, Andy. Yeah, I think it's timing and context as to why. Yeah, good perspective. And Andy, you went 7-1 and one last week. Uh, you're rolling quite along, and we will revisit all of these picks next week. Appreciate it, Chad. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. As always, a big shout-out to our Turner Sports team, Chad Acock, Abby Stoltz, Sean Bartley, Michael Kaplan, and the entire NCAA.com team that does an outstanding job of repurposing this podcast and just getting it out on all social media platforms. More than anything, what we continue to learn is to value every day, be thankful when we wake up, we got another day to go at it. Stay safe, everyone, and... We'll talk again next week.